Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but just can't find diverse and talented candidates? Then we have something that can help, our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, a small studio was looking for a visual designer. This is a remote position. Design Action Collective is looking for a web developer in Oakland, California. Design B&B is looking for a junior designer in Chicago, Illinois. DigitalOcean is looking for a senior product designer. This position is in New York City, but it's also open to remote candidates. National Geographic is looking for a senior design editor for National Geographic Magazine in Washington, D.C. And Ebi Wawa is looking for a UX UI designer. This position is in the Washington, D.C. area, but is also open to remote candidates. For just $99, your job listing will be featured on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word about it to our diverse audience of listeners. We also offer an annual job board subscription for companies and organizations. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I just want to take some time out and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, Inclusion, Diversity, Equity, and Accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with sound designer Cedric Wilson, lead producer at Lantigua Williams & Co. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I'm Cedric Wilson. I am the lead producer at Lantigua Williams & Co., and what I mainly do is sound design. How's the year been going for you so far? A lot of iPhone recordings. <laughs> <laughs> it's been good. It's been interesting. My current position actually was remote, and I started like a month right before the pandemic started. It's been a wild ride for sure, but a, a good year. Good year. Now, I'm curious, how, like, how has it been working in audio since the pandemic started? You mentioned those those iPhone recordings, but has it changed in any other ways? I would say that a lot of the projects that we work on definitely have sort of expanded in, I guess, geography. (laughs) Like we don't, like a lot of the projects we work on, it would be, okay, everyone like come to the studio or like, hey, everyone come to this one spot where we're going to record. And now because everything has to be remote anyway, it's given us a great opportunity to be like, all right, let's just record this person in LA that we wouldn't have access to beforehand. So a lot more um, 
It is open. Yeah. Uh, open. I'll say open. Okay. I would imagine, you know, I mean, when you're recording, you're doing all this digitally. So I'm, I know for some shows, for some podcasts that I've talked to, for example, some producers, like it actually has been pretty easy to kind of switch to a more, we'll say mobile type of a, a platform in terms of recording and stuff and not having to be like in a physical studio. They say it's been a lot easier because you can record over Zoom or you can, you know, do like you mentioned, record on an iPhone or something like that. Have you found that to be the case? Yeah, I was really nervous at first because a lot of the stuff we were doing in person are like me running around, putting microphones in people's faces. And I think like the biggest thing that I was worried about was that, you know, people can understand, oh, I'm going to take a, a video, like a selfie video and like understand, okay, I have to be like in the frame and like I have to have good lighting. But I don't think that we have like culturally that sort of same education around sound. So I was very, very nervous of being like, all right. So all of for all these for the remote recordings, it's like the power is in your hands completely. So like, ah, Um, Uh (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's been I think it's definitely turned around at first. It was a bit bumpy, but yeah, no, it's worked out. And quite honestly, when all of this is, I guess, eventually said and done. Uh, I think a lot of it's going to stick. Yeah, I can see, you know, that being the case. Earlier this year, I actually, I recorded two podcasts. I produced two podcasts and we did it. I mean, it was completely remote, but like the main producer we worked in was in Los Angeles. I was in Atlanta and then the host of the show was in Berlin. So we were working across like a huge time zone and the majority of the guests were in Europe. So like, we were working across these time zones to try to get things working. And there's no way that would have been able to work if we had to do it in person. You know what I mean? Like it would, it would have been impossible. <laughs> a lot of transatlantic flights on that one. But yeah. You know, it's been great. You know, like I said, it w- I was really nervous about it at first and was like trying to, you know, build a system of like, all right, let's have this recording. Let's have this backup. So just in case something happens, you know, we have this and we still had like weird things happen throughout the course of like you know all of our productions but it's worked out which is great i guess it's the the staying power of audio you know (laughs) yeah flexible talk to me about sort of what a a typical day like has been for you recently you mentioned being at lantigo williams and co what's a regular day for cedric yeah so i started that back in right at the beginning of the pandemic uh (laughs) january of 2020 and it varies some days are like pretty mix heavy where I'm still like leading, you know, the, all the technical audio engineering type of things on certain projects. Let's see. Sometimes I do just more listening and note giving on like a technical and like production level for other projects, way more emails than what I was doing when I was a freelancer. <laughs> that was definitely an adjustment. Mm-hmm. Sort of like, a lot of systems building, figuring out like what tech needs we have, like as the year goes along, as things change, moral support for producers on their projects, sort of like workshopping and figuring out what sort of techniques they should be using or can use when they're make, putting the pie together. So yeah, I would say about like 50% of my day is like hardcore in the Pro Tools sessions, making things sound good. And then the other 50% is just working with producers and other engineers and sound designers to make sure that they have what they need to get their shows made. What would you say is like a big misconception around production like that, that you think most people just don't know? 
mainly that it's low lift <laughs> or easy. I always make the joke that making media and audio is like not rocket science, but like there is a certain, you know, skill set that you have to have or should have. I know it gets like a little bit tricky because some of the tools can sort of be a barrier to creating the things that you want to create, working with the people you want to work with. But, you know, like work goes into this kind of stuff. Well, I usually say that like as much time as people use and need in, like, in the video world probably is a comparable amount of time in the audio world, too. Mm. Yeah, that's a good thing for people to note. Sort of going back to that show, or those two shows that I mentioned earlier, we would record maybe for about an hour or so, like for each episode. But then there's so much time behind the scenes of like listening back through it and editing and everything like that. And even then, the final result ended up being maybe like 10 or 15 minutes long. Yep. That can happen sometimes. You know, it's not as simple as just sitting down, pressing record. And then that goes right out. Like there has to be, hopefully there's some, some level of finesse that you do to the audio. Yeah. One of the, the big projects that you've done over the past year is this, uh, this audio series called Driving the Green Book. Can you talk to me about that? Yeah. So I, that was one of the first big projects that I got involved with as soon as I started the job. So yeah, I would go in and record our host, Alvin Hall at McMillan Studios at Macmillan, like the publishing, and they had like a little studio for us to record in. And he and Jalika did all the editing for all this tape that they gathered in the field. And so then it just all got to me, parsed it all out, made the edits they wanted and just put it all together. You know, just a lot of cutting in Pro Tools and picking out the music. Uh, I wrote some original music for that one, too. So that was that was definitely like a big project to start off with. But uh, I'm really proud with how that one came out. When did that come out? That was sometime last year, right? Yeah, it started publishing I think, August, September. So it's almost okay. now. Okay, so it ran, now that I'm thinking about what was going on that time of year, it sort of ran concurrently with Lovecraft Country that debuted on HBO. Oh, you know what? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing that wasn't on purpose. <laughs> no, that was not on purpose. Oh, man. It was just funny. I didn't watch the full season i did watch uh-huh. the first few episodes it wasn't for me but uh yeah that's kind of they work <laughs> going on around the same time jeez yeah i mean there's an element i mean if you've seen it or if any of the the listeners have seen it i mean it's on hbo max go check it out they didn't get a second season so you can watch the whole thing but there's an element of it that sort of deals with i think it sort of deals either with the actual green book or a green book like publication that one of the main characters is writing and that sort of ends up being sort of the vehicle that moves the plot along at least in the early like part of the season yeah now i'm now thinking back on it i remember like one of the first conflicts that they got into was because they were out on the road super late in a sundown town and i was like oh yeah that's and that's why the green book existed yeah yeah it's interesting like there were i mean there's sort of the case now where You'll have these shows come out and then they also have like a companion audio podcast or something that goes along with it. I think that's a both a blessing and a curse in a mm. way. Like I think it's a blessing because sometimes, especially for more, shall we say, niche kind of shows, i.e. not for white people, but like more niche kind of shows, that sort of extra explanation that would come through a podcast can be helpful to understand the source material. But then I also feel like it's too much. It's too much. Like, let folks watch the show 
and gain their own opinions about the show from the show. Like, does the show need to also have like a corresponding podcast and a syllabus and, oh yeah, read this before the next episode. Like then it becomes homework, you know, it feels yeah, like it's know, a fine <laughs> line to draw. I think for TV, I feel that I feel similarly, or I just kind of like want to watch it and not like critically think about it sometimes yeah. you know, depending on what the show is. But then I think I love sitting down and like watching like mix breakdowns or when people, you know, a lot of my music productions, hip hop based and it's like sort of frowned upon, but when people like break down the samples that people use and how they like flip them, mm-hmm. cause it's a little bit like sample snitching is just a little, it's just something that you don't really do, but I enjoy it. Cause I'm like, Oh cool. I would have never thought to break up a sample like that in that mm-hmm. way. So yeah, I'm kind of half and half on them. <laughs> sample snitching. I've never heard of that, but now when you, as you've articulated it, that makes a lot of sense. I've started seeing some videos on TikTok where people do that. Yes. Like they'll they'll have a song and then they'll sort of break it down and show how the sample ended up becoming a part of this more popular song. Yeah, and sometimes I'm like, oh, like oh, what was it? It was oh, it was a Rihanna song. Mm-hmm. I can't remember the song, but they like broke down this, and I was like, oh my god. That's the who would have thought of that. I would have never thought of it. That's so cool. Like, just yeah. like watch someone's probably, you know, like a uh, train of thought when they're like making music. I think it's just, it's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to be listening to something almost in like a multi dimensional sort of way to be able to pick mm-hmm. and isolate that part and think, well, what if I change the tempo or I change the pitch and how I could possibly use it in something else? But a lot of older music, particularly like from the 80s and before, is ripe for sampling, which of course is what a lot of people end up using it for. Um, there's this, I don't know if it's a fairly new genre, but I, I certainly discovered it fairly recently, but there's this genre called future funk that is basically like just resampled music from like the 70s and 80s, but they've like maybe changed the tempo or sped it up or they added a beat to it or something like that. And it's interesting because like it has that nostalgic sound, but it's clearly been transformed into something completely new. Yeah. No, I love it. I mean, I think like the art of sampling is just it's top tier, honestly. Like just thinking about like just even thinking about how it started, you know, like with scratching and like someone just accidentally did that and people are like, Oh, wait, but what if you do this instead? Mm-hmm. What if you take that recording and then make new music with it? I think it's just and like, it's just an infinite amount of possibilities. I think it's so cool. Think it's so yeah. Cool. Speaking of like taking older stuff and kind of breathing new life into it, there's a project that you did a few years ago called the Weeksville Project. You and I actually had first, well, we we met, I'm using air quotes here, we met through one of that show's producers, uh, TK Dutess, who is a brilliant, brilliant audio producer in New York City. She and I worked yes. together at Glitch for a good little while. Yeah, How did you- Tisha. Yeah. <laughs> How'd you get involved with the Weeksville project? Yeah, well, let's see. At that point, I was already doing some stuff in the podcast space. And actually already I met Keisha through my, I'll call him my music mentor, Willie Green, Paul Walmack, Willie Green. And we met at the Audio Engineering Society convention. <laughs> I think it was 2015. I think it was a while ago. And so I, you know, I met her through music, do all the music stuff. And then once I started doing more podcasts and radio things, I was like, oh, wait, TK does this stuff. Let's talk. So she's definitely been like a, a mentor in like that space for me. 
she knew that I was like really interested in sort of expanding the work that I was doing and wanting to do more podcasts, radio things. She's like, hey, can you do you want to sound design this project for us? And I was like, sure. Why not? This sounds dope. Mm. And now that was also, I mean, not like Driving the Green Book, but it was sort of a similar project that's kind of talking about uh, history, right? Like talking about the the weeks. I forget the name of the neighborhood, but it's like right around or, or what the, the old neighborhood of Brooklyn used to be. Is that what it is? Right. So it used to, oh man, I can't remember the location where it exists now. But yeah, it was, it was the first free black community in New York and, and you know, it existed in Brooklyn. But yeah, this was, uh, it was like a fictionalized version. So, you know, the writers took elements of, from like, you know, history and what historical fiction. Oh my God, that's what it's called. <laughs> I actually never connected the two like that. But yeah, they both did have that, that historical element to it. That was kind of fun too, because a lot of the picking like the music for it were like, all right, what would exist during this time? Or like, what would a car sound like at this time but then also like you know it wasn't the type of project where it was like oh we're in the past like you know it sound you know we wanted it to sound like it was like actually happening and happening like you're happening it's happening around you mm-hmm. um so yeah that was that was a lot of fun i want to say that that show came out right around the time there was another show bronzeville that's the name of it there was a podcast called bronzeville and i think it was based off a fictionalized, not a fictionalized, it was a fiction-based podcast, but it was based around, I think, a, a neighborhood in Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. But but it's called Brownsville. There's, And it was all celebrity actors, Lorenz Tate, Tika Sumter was in it, Lawrence Fishburne. Pretty good show. I think they only had two seasons, and then they kind of faded away, but... I like those kind of like period piece sort of shows because I always love how they do the sound design, especially when they sort of switch to the radio. And it has like that old timey <laughs> radio voice that I love how with audio you can make subtle tweaks like that. And it kind of takes you, it mentally takes you back to a certain time like that. Mm-hmm. Now, right now you're the lead producer, as you mentioned earlier, at Lantiga Williams and Company. But prior to that, like, how do you end up working on projects? Is it mostly like a word of mouth kind of thing? Towards the, like, the end of me freelancing, it was. But at first, it was just a lot of, like, just trying to figure out who needed things to get mixed. Could I mix them? Mm-hmm. <laughs> at, that, at the time, so really what started it was working on the nod. Uh, I was freelancing for Gimlet, and I actually found out about that job through Twitter. <laughs> mm. I'm only laughing because I was supposed to be working at the time that I saw this tweet, but I <laughs> I was at my old, I was, my campus job. They had a media production company, and I was like helping out with, it was like for like lectures and, you know, guest speakers, and I was like, oh, great, no one recorded this correctly. Mm-hmm. Now I have to fix this audio. So that was the job that I had over the summer. And I didn't have a lot of hours, and I kind of was like, Ugh. I need to be making my money. Like what's I need yeah. something out. I just happened to stumble upon, it was James C. Green's tweet. And it was like, Hey, we're looking for an engineer for this project for a podcast bonus points for any person that's black and queer and this, that. And I was like, all right, fill, fill a couple of those boxes. Let me, let me see. Let's go. I'm an engineer. I'm black. Let's go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I applied or emailed, I emailed him and then was in touch with Gimlet's head engineer to do like a mix test. And it was very funny 
I started the mix test for the for what you know would become the nod, and I was on a trip back. So I was taking a trip, and we were listening to For Colored Nerds. My partner was playing For Colored Nerds, and I was like, "Oh wait, I know these people. How do you know these people?" And he was like, "Oh well, I listened to this podcast. I'm a big fan." I was like, "Oh," and I really I couldn't say that. I was like, "Oh, that mix test that I've been talking about. This is actually their thing. So like, don't tell anybody." But that was really cool, and yeah, I think once. You know, after doing that show for two and a half years, then, you know, I just started to meet people and gigs would not like roll in. Like I wasn't like turning people away. I was still pretty, <laughs> pretty new to the industry. But that's when I, you know, I got to meet really great people and got to work on other really cool projects. Like that's how I met CC Pascal and I worked, did a project with them in Endeavor and Mass Appeal. Let's see, I'm trying to think of what other, there was a lot of like just small things I did for Gimlet uh, while I was still freelancing for them. And yeah, it just was a lot of just getting out there and meeting people, different like on-air fests, podcast meets at people's houses. Yeah, it just was a lot of like just doing really good work and figuring out where the people were to be like, hey, do you need me to mix something? (laughs) Yeah. As you go from like project to project in that way, do you find that they tend to be wholly different as you go to each one? I would say so. I think people's techniques sort of vary and sort of like where the engineer or sound designer or uh, composer would sort of like fit into the equation. So for a lot of projects, you know, I was like the last person to like touch the things, like the last line of defense to a really great sounding show. And there were also like certain instances of the nod or like Weeksville where I was like super involved a lot sooner. So that way I had a really good idea of what needed to be done and like what direction I wanted to go into like as the thing was being put together so it was not I don't want to say project that have the engineer come in at the end it's like an afterthought but it is definitely a much different experience to be involved mid-production as opposed to like at the end now just to you know kind of switch gears here a little bit you know we've talked about now the work that you're doing but I'm curious to kind of learn about sort of like your origin story like how you first got into all of this now so you're originally from New York City right no, I'm from Long Island. So close enough. I mean, I is, is Long Island not? Okay, look, I'm from, okay, I'm from the South. I'm from Alabama. So forgive my geography faux pas. Cause I was just going to be like, is Long Island not New York? But that's Staten Island. My bad. Sorry. Oh, yeah, Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Don't kill me, New York folks. Don't kill me. <laughs> I mean, technically, like, Queens of Brooklyn do exist on the tip of the other end of Long Island, but like, it's different. And like, I grew up in, Long Island proper. I do not ever claim that I was born in or grew up in this city. I just want to put that. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. My bad. Sorry. Sorry. No, no, no. So you grew up in Long Island. <laughs> grew up on Long Island. Uh, grew up on Long Island. Shore, Bay Shore, New York. And re- I mean, what really got me into the sound stuff was music. I am uh, a saxophonist. <laughs> okay. It was my first instrument. I started in fourth grade and stuck with it for all the way up until college. Okay. And started learning music production through music theory in high school. So that was uh, like a new program that the school was piloting. Based on the zip code that I was in, I had got afforded like a really good education and a really good music education with really great music educators, which I know was like not the norm. And I'm like, you know, looking back at all that stuff now, is like something I'm immensely lucky to have mm-hmm. experienced and grateful for. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so like when they were piloting music theory in my high school, they taught it. My teacher, Ed Schaefer, shout out, taught it through 
composition. And that's when I like started learning how to use the DAW and this is how a microphone gets plugged in and all that stuff. So like, you know, we were producing music, but then like learning the terms of the music as like we were making it. And that's probably what definitely got me started into all this. So I did that. A lot of time in the lab after school. It was great. It was like my second home. And then that led to me going to Fredonia for their sound recording technology program. It was actually kind of funny. I was, was going to do music education for a very long time. And I made the decision, I think it was senior year. Yeah, like before I started applying, I was like, you know what? Actually, I think I just want to do music production. Not that I don't like teaching. I still, I love to teach and it's something that I still do. But I was like, you know what? I want to do music. I want to make some music. Mm-hmm. So Fredonia was the, the school that I ended up going to for undergrad. And it was on the list because my high school teacher went there and was like, hey, you should go. They have a really great program for education. And then when I swapped, it stayed on the list because they had a really good sound recording program, which I actually, <laughs> actually didn't get in at first. Their program was like a, was a music science recording hybrid. Mm-hmm. And you had to get into school academically, which was fine. You also had to get into the music program. <laughs> and my audition was okay. <laughs> you know, I was a good musician in high school, but you know, it's like when you like leave you know, big fish, small pond kind of thing, you know, like you, you leave the pond and you're like, Oh wow, these, these people are good. Good. Yeah. And I remember, so the first day I, Oh, I um went to still try to get into like an ensemble. Cause I was like, all right, I'm not going to be able to start the sound recording program or the music program. I'll try again in the spring but I still want to play in an ensemble. So I went through that process and it was also a mess because I didn't realize that like you had to get material weeks ahead. That's neither here nor there. That audition was terrible. (laughs) But the saxophone professor knew who I was and apparently a seat opened up in the studio on the very first day. So I get this email from him and he's like, hey, so I remember you from the blah, blah, blah. Here's the thing. We have a seat opened up. Do you want to still do the sound recording thing? Because I learned later that I got into the sound recording program. Fine. It was that my music audition wasn't good enough to get in. And I was like, well, yes. Uh, And he's like, go email this person and run around and do all these things and figure it out because I'm not going to help you do that. And I was like, that's fine. (laughs) So, yeah, it was a a hectic first day of class. Sounds like it. (laughs) Ten hours away from home. But... Yeah, so I did that for four years. It was a really cool program. You know, got to work on musicianship skills and learn how to record, mix, and edit, and all that kind of stuff. And then I left spring of 2015. Okay. Went back home and was like, uh, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> At that point, I already had met my music mentor and, you know, was coming in and helping on, on assisting on sessions just watching him work and but it just was like hard to you know i was just going back and forth from like his place in brooklyn to my place in long island and then i was like well like kind of want to get out into the city how am i going to do it and i still don't know if this was the right choice but i was like all right i guess it's time for grad school (laughs) Mm -hmm. i decided i was like well i could like go continue and do more of what i've been doing in music and I was like, eh, I don't know. Not that I was like, oh, I'm great at what I do. and I'm the best. But I just was like, I kind of want to learn a couple of different other applications for sound or like get into a, something new. So then I stumbled on the new school's media studies program. I was like, cool. Like I can like work on sound and they have like a really cool film program. Like I was really interested at the time in making like documentary stuff. And I <laughs> so we started that program. And I remember there was a media 
design course where they walked you through like all the different things that you could do in the program. So it's like video, sound, like graphic design, you know, all of that kind of stuff. It was like a sample course. And at the end of the semester, we had to make an EPK for an artist. Huh. And you had the artist in and all the, you know, video people are like hovering over a camera talking about apertures and lighting and this, that, and the third. And I'm sitting here like, oh man, no. I was like, but I can like put that microphone in the right spot and make sure that like this guy's going to sound real crispy. And, you know, at that point I was like, oh, there's so many other things I could do with sound instead. So for a long time, it was a lot of video work, helping on like friends films, doing, you know, stuff like that for the school. And just took more classes in like that vein instead of like doing video stuff. And just that's how I started really learning about, okay, this is what sound design is. And this is what sound designers do. This is how like music gets incorporated and things like this. And this is, I took like a very like beginner radio course too, and learned a little bit about the sort of that world specifically. But yeah, so it was a lot of just being like, look, I need to, work and I want to get out of my house. So I had to make it, I need to figure it out. What other things are people doing in sound? And it worked out, I guess. (laughs) But yeah, that's how I got to, got to hear. I mean, it sounds like you just sort of had this momentum that just kept going and you just kept along with it. That's, I mean, that's what I'm sort of getting from your story here is that it was sort of one thing you went to SUNY Fredonia and then you, did you have like some audio jobs between there and going to grad school? Just with my mentor, I would like come home from breaks or like be home for the summer and just help out with either sessions or like recording sessions or building mix sessions for him, watching him work. But that was really the main thing. I, I got really plugged into like the indie hip hop scene down in Brooklyn for a while. And that sort of I mean, like just doing music has sort of always been like the connective tissue between like everything that I've done. Yeah, it actually wasn't, it wasn't all audio either. I mean, like, <laughs> that in that, I think, six to nine months that I was home, I was also working at Forever 21 <laughs> for a little bit. And then I got an internship through a friend of mine from the same Fredonia program that was a, a manager at a post house in Manhattan, Big Yellow Duck, interned there for a while. And then it eventually turned into a job that I started. It turned into a job that eventually conflicted with school. So I ended up that post house was like the first place I was like, oh, okay, this is what sound designers do. Mm-hmm. They were like doing a lot of stuff for animated projects. And I was like, okay, like, you know, from, and when I was doing that job, it was like a lot of like studio management, but then it was like, Hey, we're working on this show. Can you put all the footsteps in for this cartoon? Hmm. So yeah. So when I still like, so kind of like in. some Foley work too, also, it sounds yeah, a little, like, yep. A lot of Foley work. It was really cool. One of the shows that, while I was there, they were working on was Doc McStuffin. So like the lead engineer over there would just, you know, have like a three, four or five crates of toys, mm-hmm. to, you know, add the sounds in. So it was like, it was really cool to watch him where it was, it was dope. Nice. Nice. Why is sound design important? And, and I'm asking this because I, I'm assuming that we have for people that are listening to the show, a large amount of visual designers, probably coders or technologists, et cetera. Why Why is sound design an important thing to know? It's important because when the sound is off, you know it. And you might not know, like, why? Or you might be like, you might even, like, watch something and be like, wow, something's, like, off and might not even realize that it is the sound. But it is 
it just carries the whole not I want to say carries everything. <laughs> it's maybe a little, a little grandiose, but like if you have like this amazing film and it's shot so beautifully and like the actors are doing their thing and everything's great, but it sounds like garbage, you're gonna know. You're gonna be like, oh wow, this something was like not great about that. And I think that like permeates so much of what we interact with, be it like film, video games, YouTube videos, you know, all kinds of stuff. It's just, it's literally everywhere. Yeah. You know, I tell people that tell them that will tell me or they'll tell other people how they're not creative, for example, or they don't have any sort of design language or whatever. And I tell folks that, you know, everything that we've been using since birth has passed through some lens of design. And so, because of that, we may have intrinsic knowledge about what good design and bad design is. We may not always be able to articulate it. And I feel like mm-hmm. sound design kind of fills that gap a little bit because we tend to associate sounds with memories, sounds with objects, mm-hmm. sounds with, you know, other types of things. So being able to design something with sound to elicit that response. I feel like that's a powerful bit of sorcery to be able to do something like that. <laughs> it is. I'm only laughing because you said the word sorcery. I get called a, ma- a magician all the time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like doing a little bit of like, even like studying like sound art or just, you know, those certain projects that just like hit you. You're just like, wow, like this, like sound is like, it is, a, it's a really powerful medium. Almost like taps into like a base part of like, psychology or like the human brain or something to me it's like this is like when something gives you goosebumps you but you don't know why because it just is mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like it's so ugh, it's cool it's really cool what specifically do you enjoy about sound design like i know you're kind of working as a as a producer now but you still do kind of sound design on the side yeah i would say i like the challenge of sort of figuring out how to really like immerse someone in something because sometimes it's like not apparent or like easy to figure that out. And it could be a real challenge to be like, wait, something is like off, but like, what is it? Like, I remember <laughs> for the not did an episode for like a, a home going for Medea. So it, they, we made it sound like it was in a church the whole time. And, you know, I mixed it and we did a first pass. And I was like, there's something that was like off. And I was like, I can't figure it out. And people were like, yeah, like everyone kind of sounds almost empty or like they're like speaking into ghostish like into like you know i put like all this like reverb and things like that make it like sound like they're in this big church space but something was just off mm-hmm. and so i finally sat down with the head engineer i'm like i don't know i can't figure this one out so we're going back and forth and he just we had like this church room tone recording just playing underneath the whole thing and he turns it up like way up and i was like oh that's it that's it. It just needed more of that room tone recording, mm-hmm. you know, to really, and then like, it was just like, Oh yeah. Duh. But like, <laughs> <laughs> I don't make that mistake anymore, but I, I couldn't figure it out at first. I was like, Oh, so like, I, I like that. I like that sort of like, here's this weird thing that we're going to do, or here's like just this thing that we're going to do. How can we best convey it in sound? And just the, the challenge of, of figuring that kind of stuff out. Yeah. I was thinking of a show What's a show that I, I heard recently that had really good sound design? Two shows, actually. One is a bit of a shameless plug because I, I didn't help work on it, but I did green light the idea initially when we worked at Glitch. But there's this, this, uh, speculative fiction podcast called Open World. 
that has really great, like phenomenal sound design. And there's another show. It's actually a, it's a, like a historical kind of like a documentary series, but it's called In Vogue, like the magazine, I N V O G U E, the 1990s. And it's talking about basically like fashion in the nineties and all that sort of stuff. And they get the nineties so right. I mean, I would imagine it's because they have access to like the licenses for music and stuff, but like they've got the music (laughs) down and the sounds and it's so, it's so immersive. And also I think part of it, we talk about sound design, we talk about the created sound, but the other part of it is the authenticity of the host. So like for Mm -hmm. this particular podcast, they have uh, this sort of like, haggard british guy named hamish bowles who's a well-known fashion stylist and so his sort of kind of posh british accent kind of lends credence to that time you know it's it, it all sort of flows together very well i have to actually give it to a lot of limited edition not limited edition but limited series podcasts they do such a great job with sound design um they really do there's some others there's a uh, anime in america from crunchyroll did a great job with it there's this series on Freaknik that did a really great job with sound design and just like encapsulating that time period or that moment with sound. That's a really sort of powerful thing because sound is, you know, we talk about, or I, I've heard the the notion about how things can't be created or destroyed, but like sound is literally something that we can make ourselves and to be able to manipulate that sound and use that sound to, bring about memories or immerse someone in a particular time period. I don't know. It's, it's really powerful. That sort of is what interests me about sound design is how you're able to kind of do that sort of stuff. Yeah, no, it's great. I think that's why I love it so much. You know, I could have, you know, just stayed in music, but I think there's just something about just getting the right waves to come out, the right speaker at the right time that just does. So I don't know. It's just like endlessly, fascinating and cool and cool to work with you know <laughs> yeah i'm curious were you in marching band in high school <laughs> yes okay uh i hated <laughs> really yeah why did you hate it i was the type of like music kid to like i wanted to be in the ensemble room that uh-huh. was air conditioned <laughs> ah okay and, you know making music that way i had a lot of fun in marching band don't get me wrong it just was, it just, I just never really, yeah. it just wasn't for me. <laughs> well, I was, I was bringing up marching band largely because of, you know, talking about sort of timing and everything, but like I was in marching band in high school too. And, uh, I played trombone and I had the opportunity through my, and I have to give it to my, my band director in high school. Shout out to Mr. McDonald who like really introduced me to a lot of 70s music that I didn't know about Mm. that I might have heard, like I might have heard my parents playing it or or something like that, or like heard my grandmother playing it or something. But like once I joined the marching band, he was a big Earth, Wind & Fire fan. And so I got immersed really in like a lot of their discography because we would arrange that music and end up, you know, playing it on the field. And I got to, that's sort of how I, like sort of taught myself piano, at least how to like, you know, I know my way around a piano. I'm not a virtuoso by any means, but I know my way around a piano to like listen to something and arrange it for different instruments. And I learned that in marching band. And then we take that out and take it onto the field. Now, would they always be perfect one-to-one note for note transpositions? Not in the slightest, 
especially when we tried to remix like popular music. God, like <laughs> if I never hear Montel Jordan's, this is how we do it ever again in life. I will be perfectly, <laughs> perfectly fine. Cause we played that song to death in marching band and it was not it wasn't even a great transposition either it was or a great arrangement i should say but then we'd get some of those and i think the reason that we used earth wind and fire is because they had their band kind of mapped over to what you would have in a marching band like it has a a strong brass section and you could take the vocals and use that with woodwinds or something like that so it, it made sense in that way i loved earth wind and fire oh my god i remember Oh, my dad. So like when I, when I was young, I was big on taking the CDs and getting them on, you know, the computer or the iPod mm-hmm. uh, and burning them and being like, all right, I have to burn them. I have to burn them with these settings. And like, this is the best. Da, da, da. And I remember we, it was like this huge, like three CD, like collection of all of earth and wind fire all of i had that it was like like this like tall brown like with egyptian yeah Yeah, Yeah, i i I got that for my (laughs) god i think i got that for my 16th birthday yeah so oh i used to listen to that all the time oh man (laughs) (laughs) yeah no i mean all that that kind of stuff was my dad loved earth wind and fire i mean he was like the motown the earth one you know that kind of stuff the yeah funk, the soul r&b and then like my mom was like the anita baker rochelle farrell india re person mm-hmm. actually no it's funny they definitely like instilled you know a love of music and i remember it was i can't remember which song it was but it was off india Irie's i think second one of her the second album mm-hmm. i don't remember but i remember like that deciding to be like oh okay i think i want to make music with my life in making that decision, I remember like she was just like playing one of her CDs in the car, and I was listening to one of the songs, and I was like, "Yeah, this is. I'm gonna go make some music." <laughs> nice. Oh yeah, it was always always stuff playing in the house, even not on Sundays when it was time to clean. There was always <laughs> music playing. <laughs> <in the house. laughs> That's so funny. I, I actually this was years ago, but I had her graphic designer on the show, and Yari's graphic designer, oh, uh, wow. Denise Francis. Yeah. So yeah, the one that I remember distinctly that we would play from Earth, Wind and Fire is Star because it had a solo at the beginning and it would be a trombone solo that I would write in for myself naturally. (laughs) But it would have a solo in the beginning. And then like once it broke out into the verse, it was very easy. It was very easy for marching because it was like, da, 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 da. And so we would play like a mix. I'll say like this on the field, we would play a mix of like oldies and then stuff that's on the radio. So like we would play my boo. This is 96. I'm old. Like we would play, we, we, we would play that on the field and, and get people hype. But then like when you were in the stands and you were in your sections, your sections could do whatever you wanted to as long as you were the, the section leader. And so I was the section leader for the trombones and my nerdy video game playing ass Uh-oh. had taught my section how to play the winning battle fanfare from Final Fantasy. So when <laughs> so when the team would score a touchdown, you'd hear and people thought it was just like some like John Philip Sousa <laughs> all American kind of fanfare thing. I'm like, no, no, this is 
That's, I, I had my listen because I played Final Fantasy two to death, Final Fantasy four in Japan, but I recorded that and then I had a keyboard at home and I would trans. Uh, yeah, that's what I would do. <laughs> I would do dirty shit like that. I can't imagine songs now, like modern songs, being done. I mean, not to say that it's not done because marching bands do it, but I don't know if today's music lends to that level of instrumentality. Like, hmm. I think the latest song that I heard that actually would, that I think would do really good in a marching band is Silk Sonic's Leave the Door Open. Yeah, that was actually Anderson Pop was like where I first, where my mind first went. Yeah. Uh, just generally, but yeah, that, ooh, that's a good, what are the kids playing in marching band these days? That's a good question. I don't know, because, like, I can't imagine any of this, like, mumble rap stuff going over well on the field. <laughs> I can't. I don't know what that would sound like. Probably would sound like a a swarm of bees or something. I don't know. Maybe. I, Some of that stuff hits. I'm trying to I'm sure the drummers really enjoy enjoy that. Yeah. Stuff. It's honestly probably <laughs> the stuff that has, like, old school samples in it. Probably, yeah. Yeah. Curious. So, like, what's the difference between a sound designer... And an audio engineer, like in your eyes, like, is there a difference between those two? There is. I think you probably get a different answer from different people. But for me, I would say an audio engineer is someone who is just doing the technical stuff. Mm-hmm. Like, record this well, clean this up, put this thing here. Even to like a certain extent, like, like editing, you know, not for quality, not necessarily for content. And I would say a sound designer is someone who may or may not have those technical skills. I, you know, always try to say that, like, you don't have to get into sound design through engineering. There are a lot of great people who came in as, like, producers, quote unquote, and, like, you know, did and just do really great sound design. But I, I would say a sound designer is someone who is able to make those creative choices and say, OK, we want this to sound like it's in a church or in a cave or in space or wherever and then has the tools at their disposal to make that happen so one kind of is more creative and the other is more technical i guess just to kind of i mean broadly saying yeah super broadly because i mean i've definitely seen some like engineers who especially like in the music world who can just mix their butts off and do things that i'm just like why in god's name would you ever think to do something like that but it sounds amazing yeah it's like the thing where like at any job you know when you're at a really high level is creative but yeah i would say like the the distinction between there is like more i I would say more technical to like more production and then i'd imagine there's probably even well i know well i know for a fact that there's like business slash branding elements that go to it because you did some sound design work back when i worked when both tk and i worked at glitch you came on and worked as a sound designer for a project that we had where you sort of made like a audio jingle or like an audio brand for the company. Yeah. I think that they're called like audio identities. Yeah. Audio identity. Yeah. Yeah. That was really cool. That was the first time I did something like that because TK was like, hey, we have this thing. Do you think you can, can you do this? And I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> And then, like, <laughs> I did some research and then like <laughs> listened to like all the episodes of uh, 20,000 Hertz that <laughs> dealt with this specific topic. And I was like, all right, let's go make, let's go make some audio IDs. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that was super fun. 
that was cool. So yeah, I mean, it was like that one. It was was cool because like you know, I, I the, the way that we that I decided to do is I came at the group with like three very different ideas for it. I think one was like I like sat down with everyone and was like, all right, here's what I think. This is what I think you all want. Here's mm-hmm. what if you just what is it? Here's what I think my interpretation would be like if I were to personally do it. This is how I would do it. Yeah. And then I did like one that was like really abstract and just weird. Because you, know, you gotta have one like that just to like be like, oh, yeah. maybe there's something there. I don't know. And yeah, that was a really cool process. Just kind of like going back and forth and figuring out, okay, this is the sound that we want, and like how do we get it to like work? And there was like a visual element that you know it needed to sync up with too. So yeah, that that was a lot of fun, and definitely <laughs> it was the first time I ever did it, and I think it worked out well. <laughs> yeah, I would say for people that that probably, I think a lot of folks have heard audio identities but may not necessarily really know what it is, but like just to kind of give a a broad example, like for when you watch a new movie on Netflix and you hear that sort of opening, like dum dum, or Intel has, you know, boom, 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 yep. or something like that. Like those little types of, I don't know what they're called, like zingers or whatever. I'm just making up words, but like those little audio blurbs can often be indicative of like an entire brand. And what I think we're starting to see now is a lot more companies are leaning into that with the advent of like smart speakers and things of that nature. You're starting to to hear a lot more audio identities. One that surprised me recently was uh, YouTube. Like YouTube is, com- is completely visual, but YouTube has an audio identity. If you're watching, if I cast YouTube to television or like if I watch YouTube on like say Apple TV or Chromecast TV or something, there's like a opening whoosh sound or something with YouTube. Like it goes, like there's like, it's new. And I've just recently started paying attention to it. And I would imagine it's probably to get people's attention if they're not looking at the screen, but it also is to just sort of signify like, Hey, if you're across the room and you hear this, you already know like exactly what it is. Like when you hear the Netflix sound, you know, that's Netflix. Or like if you hear a certain app or something chime or chirp, you know that's that app because the app has a specific sound to it or something like that. So there's a lot more tech companies and design companies or at least design focused tech companies that are leaning into audio identities as ways to kind of brand themselves, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it, like it's a powerful, powerful tool. I get yeah. it. Yeah. Sense. Now, as I sort of alluded to earlier, I'm pretty sure most of our audience are like probably visual designers in practice or they're software designers or something like that. What would you tell someone that wants to know about sound design? Like, what should they know when it comes to sound design? I would say it's bigger than you think it is. And so, like, when I was doing a lot of like the indie film stuff in school and we work with filmmakers people just didn't fully know like how much goes into it or like if you're making something that's like a huge budget like i don't think people realize the actors don't just say their lines on set or in front of a green screen (laughs) they go back into a studio afterwards and dub everything afterwards Mm -hmm. which you know depending on like the budget is like you know not everyone could do that but it just was just to say that like the work that goes into the sound is about the same that you'll have to put into a visual thing so like if you have the means a really good friend or the budget get you a sound person get you someone who can can really can really do that work 
Are there certain like resources or tools that you would recommend for someone that wants to get into sound design? Like they're, they've listened to this episode. They think this is cool. This is something I want to maybe pick up as a skill or something like that. What resources would you recommend? I would say YouTube is your best friend. I learned probably too many things Mm -hmm. on that site, which is like a little annoying to say as someone that also went to grad school. There are like so many people just doing the work of just like being like, hey, this is what we do and this is how it works. It's always been a great resource. A lot of like plugin companies are now also really into the content creation game. So like usually like Waves, if you find the good tools, usually there's like good videos and things like that to go along with it. Yeah. Okay. What haven't you done yet that you want to do? I would love to start getting into like the more experimental stuff. I would love to do more fiction stuff. I think for a while I was like afraid of fiction just because I knew how much work needs to go into it. Just like time wise. And I think maybe some of the first sound design experience I had got not scared me off from it, but I just was like, uh, how do people actually do this all the time for work? But I would love to do that kind of stuff more. I guess get less into like the literal space and more on the like metaphoric stuff and like, you know, how does this weird sound or experience or whatever represent something as opposed to like this quote unquote interview. Like I'm not trying to like place a value judgment on narrative audio and things like that, but I I would love to start getting into like just making more weirder things and just like figuring out what I guess being an artist might look like more in like the sound design realm. Like I know who I am as an artist for music, but for sound design, it's just like, Ooh, what do I really want to be making here? Um, Mm. Just like sort of figuring that kind of stuff out. So I'd say, you know, to that end, like where do you see yourself in the next like five years or so? Like what kind of work do you want to be doing? I would love to be doing more things in collaboration with more, with musicians and things like that. Like I, Song Exploder is like a huge inspiration for me. I absolutely love that podcast. Like listening to shows like like 20,000 Hertz is is amazing. And even like podcasts that are like narrative, but like use music in really interesting ways. Like like Dissect. Like Dissect. I need to listen to the new season of Mogul. Like they're doing a season on like Chopped and Screwed. Like I, I, Oh, nice. I mean, there's like so much really, really cool storytelling that can happen just around the realm of sound and not just because like you can use sound in cool ways, but just because like it's also just genuinely interesting. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yeah, I would just like more, it's just like more immersion, more like risk taking, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Well, just to, you know, wrap things up here, Cedric, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? You can find out more about me on my website. It's probably the best spot, CedricWilsonMedia.com. I am also on Twitter at CedricWilson64, but I will give the warning that I don't tweet <laughs> very often. But like, you know, if anyone ever had a question, you can feel free to hit up the DMs. But uh, I'm not a big social media person. I'm sorry for that. But <laughs> okay, no. It's, it's a, hey, look, you're in the studio. You're mixing audio and stuff. It makes sense. I get it. Yeah, I get um, it. I host a, a gaming podcast. I really love video games. We ha- we should talk more about video games after this. But uh, I do that. It's called Gamer Friends. You can find it on 
You can find that on any podcast platform. I was about to say, you work Should at podcasts, and you're like, I have a podcast. It's on, oh, man, I can't think of the name. I just can't remember the, the thing now. I think it's, it's, I like the phrase that I like is, whatever platform you're listening to this on, you can find it there as well. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I'm not behind the mic often. <laughs> it's all good. It's all good. Uh, Cedric Wilson, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for really kind of demystifying sound design, not just for me, but I think for the audience as well. You know, sound is, you know, being able to hear is one of our five vital senses. And as designers, of course, we look at visual things, we touch things. So the work that we do is mostly around those two senses. But sound is something I think, you know, for those of us that have hearing, we sort of take it for granted in terms of yes. how important it is and how useful it is. And so it's good to have someone, you know, on the show to talk about how they got into sound design, how it's important and how you've been able to use it, you know, to be a creative person. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. I had a, I had a very good time. Big thanks to Cedric Wilson. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Cedric and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, Check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit. Creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? Better yet, what do you think about the podcast overall? Don't be a stranger. Talk to us. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path. Or you can leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let everyone you know know about the show because it really helps us grow. And honestly, even after eight plus years in the game, it helps reach more people all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>